0: Offering my most loving Pranams at Bhagwan's lotus feet. Dear listeners, I welcome you to this week's episode of the Gita series, The Triune Pilgrimage. As always, this is Prem, your friend from Team Radio Sai, and I'm sitting here in our studios at Prashantin Nilayam and I'm glad to be back here on another episode of the Gita series, a program where we go through the Bhagavad Gita verse by verse. We've just completed the second chapter, and as I promised last week. I'm here with a summary of the second chapter but the problem is I think I might not be able to complete the second chapter's summary in one episode and uh, it also means that for one hour you're going to listen only to my voice and I hope I don't put you all to sleep. The reason why I thought it would be good for us to revisit the second chapter before proceeding in the Bhagavad Gita is as I made reference a couple of times to Swami's words, Swami says that this is the summary of The entire Bhagavad Gita and rest of the chapters can be considered as commentaries of what is mentioned in the second chapter. And uh, that is why this is a very, very important chapter. It was packed with so many concepts, right, which uh, took us a lot of time to go through. And that's why it would be very useful for all of us to go through what were the many things that Krishna mentions, the many events that occurs before we go forward forward. the other chapters so here is a summary of the second chapter i'm guessing that we will be able to complete right up till the end till the point where krishna starts speaking about the nature of a sthita prajna or a person who is wise right so i think that alone we'll probably leave it for next week before we start the third chapter we can complete that in about 10-15 minutes i'm hoping and then we can continue with the third chapter so we'll see how it goes my preparation suggests that that's why I will stop but we'll see how it goes. So in the second chapter the first verse it uh, starts with Sanjaya describing the plight of Arjuna right? because Arjuna has just completed all of his arguments This the first chapter is referred to as the Arjuna Vishada Yoga so he's completed all his arguments and says why he sees no point in taking part in the battle and why he is very very despondent And that entire argument is just completed. The scene is that Arjuna has just sunk into his seat. Till this point of time he was standing and that was also a suggestion that he might still fight. But when he sinks into his feet, Sanjaya says that he had tears in his eyes and uh, that also suggests that he was genuinely weighed down by the depressing thoughts. right? And I think that is why Vyasa specifically mentions that he had depressed eyes which were filled with tears and uh, he was absolutely overwhelmed and Sanjaya says that he was overwhelmed by compassion at this point in time. The verses 2 and 3 Krishna uses very strong words to chastise Arjuna. He says where is this kasmalam or dirt come from he asks Arjuna and why at this hour and then he goes on to use very strong words like Anarya Asvargyam, Akirtikaram, Klaibyam. It is uncivilized, not something that will lead to a place in heaven, and it'll lead to infamy, and it is a sign of impotence and a weakness of heart. All of these words seem to be very harsh against a person who is probably already depressed and he's crying and he's depressed. But Swami explains the reason why Krishna speaks so harshly. He says Arjuna was slipping into a state of Tamas and the discourse that Arjuna was going to receive from Krishna is going to be one of the highest truth, right? Which is the highest sattva. And from Tamas one cannot be raised to sattva. So Swami says that he had to be first brought to a state of Rajas or a state of at least aggression, of defensive aggression as we would see. That's what Arjuna raises into. So to bring Arjuna from Tamas to Rajas Krishna uses these strong words. So in verses 4 to 6, Arjuna springs up in defense of his words and actions, right? Because in the first chapter, he explains why that he doesn't want to fight. So in verses 4 to 6, Arjuna actually comes to his own defense and he says that I am not saying all of this because I am a coward, nor am I unsure of winning, right? Because when Krishna uses these words, it is suggestive of that, that Arjuna is... Expressing a certain sense of fear. But Arjuna is saying that, see, this is nobility. I'm trying to express my nobility and this is how you are treating it, right? So he very, very vehemently defends himself. He says that, uh, I don't want to fight because, in fact, I'm sure of winning, right? Because all of this confusion comes because Arjuna is sure of winning and if he's sure of winning, he's going to end up killing most of these people who are dear to him. And he expresses his desire to leave everything and run away to the forest. This is a point of view that Arjuna repeatedly places before Krishna. And the crux of the Gita is to explain how running away from duty or running away from a situation can never be a solution and it is not a noble thing to do. Going forward in the 7th verse, Arjuna admits that though he is telling all of this, though he seems to be speaking very confidently and Seems like he's speaking with compassion and clarity. Arjuna himself admits that he is actually deluded and he doesn't know what his duties are. So Arjuna requests Krishna that he must tell him what he must do and he must accept him as his Sishya or a disciple. He doesn't merely say that you tell me what to do and I will do it. Yes, that is a submission that Arjuna plays, but he also says, that you must accept me as your sishya which means that Krishna must not merely instruct him as to what is to be done but Krishna also has to explain why he has to do a certain thing in verse number 8 Arjuna adds that whatever he may do that if Krishna says fight he is going to fight or Krishna says okay let's go back to our palace and let's give up this idea of winning the battle Arjuna might be able to do that too but he says either way he is going to be overcome by sorrow He wishes to know what is right and wrong with regards to his duty but he also wants to overcome his sorrow. Right? We'll come back to both of these points because these are very very important and this is where the discourse starts off from. But before that, verse number 10 is where Sanjaya says that Krishna smiles at Arjuna. So till now Arjuna has spoken, Arjuna has made his submission and Arjuna sits down. Sanjaya explains or describes the scene. He says, Krishna smiles at Arjuna's plight not because Krishna was being heartless or apathetic to Arjuna's situation or plight but rather Swami would very beautifully say that you know if you look at Arjuna's plight Arjuna's pain however real it may appear however genuine it may seem is born out of delusion of attachment Right? it comes from attachment whereas Krishna though he appears to be harsh he has used harsh words Though he appears to be smiling at the plight of somebody who is depressed, Swami says, whatever Krishna was doing and saying was coming out of his love. And that is why what Krishna says is a selfless and of highest purity. So Krishna is smiling because so far Arjuna had only approached Krishna as a friend. He had approached him as a brother, as a companion. But now for the first time, Arjuna has prayed to Krishna that he be guided and he surrenders. And Swami would say in the Bhagavad and we have discussed all of this that God is more keen that the devotee must turn to him than the devotee himself. So when Arjuna surrenders, Krishna is silently happy because finally Arjuna has come to a state where he is ready to submit his discrimination and reasoning at the feet of Krishna and Krishna the Guru is happy for Arjuna the disciple. From verse 11 Krishna begins his real discourse and we have said that most of the commentaries begin from either the 10th or the 11th verse of the Bhagavad Gita because this is truly where the discourse begins. So as I mentioned just a while ago, Arjuna asks for two things. He says, I want to overcome grief and I also want to know what is right and wrong. And Swami says in the Gita Vahini that Arjuna suffers from two types of delusion or moha. And in fact, we all are under these two types of delusions. Swami says one is Samanya Moham and the other is Asadharana Moham. Samanya Moham is an ordinary or regular delusion, which means it is so common that almost everyone is under that delusion. And that's why it's Samanya or a very commonplace delusion. Asadharana Moham means it is extraordinary. Some people or some people under some circumstances get into this sort of delusion. Arjuna feels that he will never get over sorrow as a result of Samanya Moham and is unclear about his duty as a result of his Asadharana Moham. What is the Samanya Moham or the most common form of delusion? To confuse the body with the self. So Krishna deals with this delusion or the Samanya Moham from verses 11 to 30, where he speaks about the true nature of the self, which is what is referred to as Sankhya Yoga. From verses 31 to 39, Krishna speaks of Arjuna's duty. Thereby, he deals with the Asadharanamoham. It is called Asadharanam or extraordinary because most of us do our duty in regular circumstances, but we get confused when we come under pressure. Just like in the case of Arjuna, he is a very dutiful person. He has been a dutiful son. He has been a dutiful husband. He has been a dutiful brother. He has been a dutiful prince and warrior too. But in this extraordinary situation, not all of us will be in a situation where we have to take up arms against our own teachers and against our own mentors. So it's an extraordinary situation that Arjuna is placed in. And this extraordinary situation has led to him being under pressure. And that has confused him as to what is his duty and what is not his duty. So from verses 31 to 39, Krishna speaks of Arjuna's duty and thereby deals with the asadharan Moham. From verses 40 to 53, Krishna explains the most important concept of buddhir yoga or what is also referred to as karma yoga. So though he explains what is his duty from 31 to 39, From 40 to 53, he explains what is the best way to go about doing one's duty. And then thereafter, Arjuna asks about the nature of sthita prajna, which is verse 54 till the end of the chapter. So this is the breakup. We'll go into each one of these sections and we'll summarize each one of these sections. Somebody said that uh, one of the listeners did mention that they wanted this breakup to be retreated again. So this is what it is. From verse 11 to 30, Krishna speaks about the true nature of the self, thereby removing the most commonplace delusion of we confusing the body to be the self. From 31 to 39, he speaks about how to define one's duty or in this case how Arjuna can go about doing his duty. Thereby he deals with the extraordinary form of delusion which we come under when we are in uh, acute circumstances or under pressure. From 40 to 53, he speaks about how the same duty can be done in a more wise manner. And that is what Buddha is all about. And from 54 till the end of the chapter, I think the 72nd verse, Krishna speaks about the nature of Sthita Prajna because that is what Arjuna asks him. So let's take each of these parts, and we'll go about summarizing them. Let's start with the section from verse 11 to 30 where Krishna speaks of the nature of the self. So this section is called the Sankhya Yoga and it is called Sankhya for two reasons. One is of course because it speaks of the highest wisdom regarding the self. But the word Sankhya also means logical or a very reasonable and very logical explanation, right? That's what it means. So this section is called Sankhya because the explanation that Krishna gives is very approachable to the thinking mind or the logical mind. Swami says that the 11th verse or the 11th shloka is a very, very important one, especially for the students of Gita. In fact, it is also referred to as one of the bija shlokas or the Seed shlokas. Because Krishna says, He says that you are grieving for something that you ought not to be grieving. Ashotchyan anvashochastvam, He says. Even as you speak words of wisdom, prajna vadam shabhashya says, he says. So Krishna refers to these two things. So this is a sloka which is important because we all are in this state. Our sorrow is baseless. We are grieving for things that we should not be grieving for. And at the same time, we think that that is wisdom, right? which is actually convenient philosophy. If you look at what Arjuna is saying here, he's speaking wise words. He's sounding like a very wise person. But in essence, it is only trying to justify the delusion that he is under, which means it is convenient philosophy. And why do we grieve? Because we believe that the body is the self, which is the Samanya Moham or the most universal form of delusion. And Krishna says, A truly wise one does not grieve for the dead or the alive. Saying so, Krishna is hinting that sorrow is one of the barometers of wisdom. When we have sorrow, it means we still have a scope for growth, right? So both of these things, one is about sorrow and the other is about wisdom. These both are very essentially connected. So Krishna begins his discourse of the highest wisdom by saying, you, me and all of these kings were here and will always be here, which means we all are eternal. Yes, there is change, but just as one moves from infanthood to childhood, From childhood to youth and youth to old age, the soul moves from one body to the other. The change that we call growing old may appear different from the change that we call death and rebirth. But a truly wise person will see that they are one and the same. They are just changes which come in slightly different forms. So Krishna uses the word Dehantara Prapti for death. And the literal meaning of the word Dehantara Prapti means it is getting a complete body makeover or getting a new body completely, which means the person underneath is the same, only the body changes. And this is a process which happens even in what we refer to as biological aging. After every few years, almost all the cells of the body undergo a change. You get new cells, right? Or for someone like who goes and gets a complete facial makeover through a process of plastic surgery or something it doesn't mean that it's a different person it's the same person so krishna says that what you refer to as growth from childhood to old age is no different from one person going from one body to the other through the process that you refer to as death and rebirth yes we may or may not like some changes right just like how now we are going through a really really hot summer here in prasanthi or in some places the winter could be very very bitter right these are changes which are natural but we may or may not like them but we accept that it is part of nature's cycle and we live with it right so similarly krishna says one must accept changes and learn to deal with them krishna suggests that we cannot afford to develop strong likes and dislikes and allow those likes and dislikes to constantly define our actions right so krishna says Agamapayena Anityaha Tam Titikshasva He says, recognizing these changes as being temporary, learn to tolerate them. And then says, one who learns to be unaffected by Sukha and Dukha, happiness and sorrow, understanding this temporary nature of both, becomes fit to attain liberation. And when he says, unaffected, He refers to the state of the mind. The body will certainly feel the change. The body, when it becomes very hot, struggles. There is dehydration for the body or when it becomes very cold, there is frostbite or whatever it is. The body does undergo the change. The body does suffer. But what Krishna is referring to here is the state of mind. How we get extremely disturbed when some change that we don't like occurs. So this is what uh, Krishna is referring to. He is not referring to merely the suffering that the body undergoes right so that's what he says he says all of these changes accept them as agamapayina which means they keep coming and going they are anitya; they are not going to stay here forever and once you recognize this the suffering that the mind undergoes when a change is not favorable will be much much lesser the 16th shloka of the second chapter was again a very very important one where Krishna speaks of a few very important concepts in Vedanta. He speaks about Sat and Asat which is truth and untruth. He speaks about Bhava and Abhava which is existence and non-existence, Tattva and tattva The essence and the one who has understood the essence and is able to constantly see the essence In all diversity, then he says that that which is asat has but a brief existence, so much so that it does not exist at all. It is like a piece of news that turns out to be a rumor. Right? When you hear something which is untrue, you don't know it is untrue, but when you hear it, it causes grief. But it never happened. Right? A rumor is something which is a lie, which never happened. Once we know the truth, we will not continue to be unhappy. Right? So similarly, when we know that this body has but a brief existence, it is asat or untrue. How can we grieve over something that is false? And that is what Krishna had said, that you are grieving over something that is not worth your grief. A tattva darshana or a wise seer sees sat as sat and asat as asat and does not get confused. And because that which pervades everything And each one is constant and never changes. Where is the question of grief at all? So Krishna in essence says, that you see all these people before you and revere them. But why do you revere them and why do you worry that they will die or they will cease to exist? Because the Dehi or the indweller has operated from within them and given you love, guidance, care and knowledge. Without that Dehi, they were only corpses. And That Dehi is the most important thing. So when you were looking at your masters, when you're looking at your grandfather, when you're looking at all of these brothers, you were looking at them, what animates them is the Dehi and not the Deha. They were only corpses. So when the focus is on the Dehi, you have to look at the nature of the Dehi and he says the Dehi is Sat. It does not undergo any change. So when that is the case, why would you cry over it? The Deha is Asat. When you know the Deha is Asat, you cannot grieve over it. Because he says, once you know something was a rumor, it's like you hear bad news, you cry over it, someone comes and tells you that you know it was a rumor, it was just cooked up. How can you continue to cry over it? So the moment you know that something is untrue, you cannot cry over it anymore. right? So Krishna goes on to say that the body perishes, but the Dehi is eternal and also unchanging. Nitya and Anashinaha right? he uses both of these words he says Nitya and Anashinaha which means eternal and it does not undergo destruction and we saw how these two are not synonyms so to say because Nitya eternal something can continue to exist with a changed state like the example which is often given in Vedanta is you have a pot and you break the pot or you cause a crack on the pot the pot continues to exist but now it has a crack on it right now it continues to exist as a cracked pot or if you take the example of the earth the way we are going on misusing the natural resources or overusing the natural resources we would eventually end up ruining the earth hopefully that doesn't happen so the earth will continue to exist but the utility of the earth would have been spoilt because of our mindless action, right? But Krishna says that Dehi is not only eternal, yes it continues to live, but it cannot be destroyed or modified too. It is Anashinaha and that is why no action that is performed can change its state of existence. It is like a pot which cannot be broken. It is like an earth whose nature can never be changed by the actions above. So such a Dehi is sat right and that is what is tatwa and of course we had seen what the meaning of the word tatwa itself is which means tat means that and that is used as a pronoun and a pronoun is something which can be used commonly no matter what the name and the form of the object or the person that you're referring to so tatwa is that existence which does not depend on the name and the form so tatwa is the essence and the ability to see the essence is tatvadarshibhi and the essence is the unchanging truth. And that is how Krishna describes the Dehi. Then Krishna goes on to establish a very very important and beautiful link between doership and this knowledge of the self. Again, this is a very very important concept because when we talk about Dharma, we are talking about doership. The whole idea why Arjuna is refusing to fight is he fears his doership will result in some things He fears that this whatever action he is going to do is going to attach itself on him and that is what he refuses to indulge in. Then he goes on to establish the link, Krishna goes on to establish the link between doership and the knowledge of the self. Krishna says, the individual who thinks that the Dehi can be killed or the Dehi kills, both of them lack wisdom. What is the meaning of this? As he explained earlier, the Dehi is Anashinaha, which means it cannot be killed. But it also suggests that it does not undergo any change. As I said, it is like a pot which probably cannot even sustain a crack or a bruise. It does not undergo any change at all. So when the Dehi does not undergo any change, there is no reason for it to be a doer. If we were to observe our own selves, Why are we inspired to do any action? Why are we inspired to do something or take up some activity? It is because we feel that doing that will cause a certain change in our current state of existence, right? I start a business because I feel that that will improve my state. I go and learn something or read something because I feel that will improve my knowledge, right? So, constantly action or doership or the idea that I want to do something or I wish to do something is always attached to that causing a certain change in my current state of existence. right? So, doership and change is attached in that manner. So, we constantly act only because we seek some improvement in our current state. So, the changelessness or that which is self-sufficient, the Dehi is Anashinaha, it does not undergo any change and when it does not undergo any change, it means it is self-sufficient. So when it is self-sufficient, it does not willfully do anything. So from the changeless and the eternal nature of the self, Krishna explains where it is neither the doer nor is it subject to anyone else's action. And all of this comes from this beautiful idea that the Dehi is eternal and Anashina. Because it is changeless, it does not have the desire to do anything and so it is never the doer. So though in general it is about doership itself, because the context here that Arjuna is in is about the war, Krishna refers to killing and being killed and thereby speaks about death and life itself. So after reiterating that the Dehi is indestructible and eternal, that it cannot be cut, burnt or broken, and that it is not the doer, Krishna goes on to say that one who recognizes the self as having these qualities and understands that one is the self and not the body, such a person transcends doership. I hope that was clear, or uh, if that was too fast, I'll just repeat that. So, Krishna says the Dehi is anashinaha, it is eternal, it does not undergo any change, it is not subject to any change. So, such a Dehi will never be a doer because doership is always attached to some form of improvement. Not only is the Dehi not the doer, but the one who recognizes the Dehi, as described by Krishna, that it is all of these traits, the one who recognizes the Dehi to have these traits, and the one who recognizes that he or she is the Dehi, such a person will also transcend the idea of doership. So very very beautifully Krishna explains the nature of the Dehi and why it is beyond the idea of doership. And the knowledge of the Dehi being beyond doership will also lead you to a state beyond doership. And I think we did discuss in length about how this knowledge is in the mind. The mind is still part of the delusion or the Maya. But nevertheless, this knowledge being in the mind also leads to us transcending doership because that is what will lead to the process of Shravanam, Mananam and where. This truth is constantly contemplated upon where we constantly believe that we are not the doer and that will eventually seep into our understanding actions and will make us transcend doership. So the Deha is just like a shirt, Krishna says, that is discarded or a new shirt that is worn. And if you recognize this and constantly remain in that state of understanding, you will not be fooled to think that you are not the doer. So this is a very beautiful and logical explanation that connects the nature of the self to the idea of doership. Eventually Krishna concludes this description with shloka number 25 by saying that given these are the qualities of the self, there should be no reason for grief whatsoever. Another important observation that needs to be made here is that Krishna still says all of this referring to the shrutis he constantly says that thus it is said thus it is explained or as you know it already meaning that these are all common knowledge right most of this arjuna must have read even in the gurukula days right because these must have been taught by the sages and saints in the gurukula as a common wisdom or common knowledge so still krishna is not Asserting his divine authority, he is still making a reference to the Shrutis and at that point I had explained or even in the curtain raiser I had explained how the Bhagavad Gita is a Smriti and a Shruti. Smriti because it is an explanation that Krishna is giving and the nature of a Smriti is always that it will try to point to the Shrutis and he says, you know, all the explanations will say, so this is what the Veda says and this is how this can be understood through the Vedas the smriti or the work of a human being will always take references to the vedas and say that that is why what i'm saying is true right that is the case with all the puranas that is the case with all the commentaries on upanishads so always there'll be reference to the vedas and since krishna is still in that quote unquote smriti mode he is referring to the vedas still right then Krishna goes on to briefly take up a very different argument. He says, let us say that you do not believe that the Dehi is eternal. Right? For argument's sake, let us say that you believe that the Dehi or the indweller dies with the Deha. Right? That it perishes with the body when at the time of death. Krishna says, even then you should not be crying. Why? Because in that case, death becomes a certainty why would you cry over something you know is very much part of life, right? Of course, this Krishna says only as an argument's sake and very very briefly because he concludes this section on the Sankhya Yoga or the nature of the self in verse number 30 by going back to saying that they who resides in all will never be killed, so do not grieve over it. So this is the first and the most important part of uh, the second chapter which is Sankhya Yoga. I think I've been going on endlessly for the past uh, 35 minutes. Probably we'll take a short break. I'm going to play a song for you just to break the monotony and probably give you some time to digest whatever was said in the form of somebody. I'm just going to play out a song for you. Don't go away, dear listeners. We're going to come back and continue with the summary of the second chapter. Mm-hmm.
1: Where are you, O my Krishna? Whither have you gone, O my Krishna? Have you no pity? Krishna, my Krishna Where are you, O my Krishna? Whither Krishna, have you no pity? Krishna, Sai Krishna, if you were a tree growing upwards, I would cling to you like a creeper. If you were a blossoming flower, Hover over you like a bee Where are you, oh my Krishna Whither have you gone, oh my Krishna Have you no pity Krishna, Sai Krishna Boundless sky, I would sit in you like a star. If you were the sparkling ocean, I would merge in you like a wave. Where are you, oh my Krishna? Whither have you gone, oh my Krishna? Have you no pity? Krishna, my Krishna, where are you, oh my Krishna? Whither have you gone, oh my Krishna? Have Krishna, Sai, Krishna If you were a tree growing upwards I would cling to you like a creeper If you were a blossoming flower I would hover over you like a bee Where are you, O my Krishna? Whither have you gone, O my Krishna? Have you no pity? Krishna, Krishna If you were the boundless sky Sit in you like a star If you were the sparkling ocean I would merge in you like a wave Where are you, oh my Krishna Whither have you gone, oh my Krishna Krishna
0: Sai Krishna. Welcome back dear listeners. Let's continue with the summary of the second chapter, and as I just concluded, we finished the section that concludes at verse number 30, which is the Sankhya Yoga. From verse 31 starts the discourse on Arjuna's duty, and this section concludes in verse number 39. The interesting thing is, till now Krishna spoke about the Dehi and its nature but now he is speaking about in this section the Deha Dharma or the duty based on one's station in life. And he says that as a Kshatriya, this is a great opportunity for you Arjuna. Because a warrior is trained for participating in a war all his life but even as a warrior participates in the training it is done so with the hope that he would never have to have a fight because we are supposed to be seeking peace as much as possible. So most warriors live, train and die without an opportunity to express their talents in warfare. Right? So that is why Krishna says that it is a very rare opportunity to get to fight in a battle for a kshatriya and so you have got this opportunity. And even rarer is the opportunity to fight on the sides of dharma because even in the battlefield, there are many, many Kshatriyas on the other side, on the Kaurava side. They too are in the same plight. They probably would have died without an opportunity to express their talent in warfare. But unfortunately, they are fighting on the wrong side of Dharma. So he says, as a Kshatriya, the opportunity to participate in a war is rare. And rarer still is an opportunity to be on the right side or the Dharmic side when it comes to fighting in a battle. So Krishna says, for Arjuna, the warrior, this is the rarest of rare opportunities. And not only that, this is an opportunity which is an open invitation to a place in heaven. And then he goes on to say, and maybe I'll explain that generally, if you, when you're talking about a special offer, because he says it is an open invitation to heaven, any special offer as such, if you look at it, is beneficial if we use it. If we don't use it, it's okay, you don't lose anything. But when we talk about duty, it is not like that. By doing our duty, we certainly progress and in some cases like in the case of Arjuna, such opportunities to perform the duty itself becomes very, very rare. But duty itself is such that when we do not do it, we are sinning or we are performing a sin, right? And that is why it's a very, very important thing. The difference between an offer which comes in front of you or you know somebody says that you know here is a special offer, you can do this course which otherwise would have costed you $100, you can do it with $10. Yeah, if you don't use the opportunity, you only lost the opportunity, you've not lost anything more. But duty is not like that. Doing the duty is beneficial, but if you do not take the opportunity to do your duty, that leads to sin, right? And that is why a mother who fails to do her duty of caring for her child, a father who fails to take good care of the family or Anybody who is put in a situation where acting becomes their duty, when they fail to act, the inaction itself becomes a sin. So Krishna reminds Arjuna about the danger that was staring before him. If he does not take the opportunity to do his duty, if he does the duty, he's is going to lead him to heaven. But if he refrains from doing it as Arjuna was trying, right, he was saying that I will go away to the forest, I will run away from this opportunity. Right? Because he was saying that if I win, I'm going to be sad. If I'm going to lose, I'm going to be sad. So let me not participate at all. But the moment fighting in the battle becomes Arjuna's duty, even inaction becomes a sin. Right After this point, Krishna begins to appeal to the honourable person in Arjuna, the one who has worked all his life to build a reputation. He speaks of how endless infamy will come to Arjuna if he does not take part in the battle and how other warriors will laugh at him, how no one will accept all of his arguments that he is giving out of nobility. He can say that, you know, I'm being kind, I'm being compassionate, so I want to run away. But he says, all that argument will not be accepted. People will still laugh at you and people will still say whatever they want to say. The other way of looking at it is, he says that you will lose your Kirti and we explained how the importance Swami gives to Kirti is also because sometimes when we are looking at a situation like in the case of Arjuna, we will be deluded by our biased opinion of the situation. Like like in the case of Arjuna or like in the case of even Dhrudrashtra, he was not able to act dharmically because he was biased towards his children. So in such situations, when we talk about Kirti or what the general opinion of the society is, sometimes the society will have an opinion which is more centered on Dharma than the individual because the individual is given to bias right so when krishna says that you will get akirti the other warriors will talk ill of you they do not have the bias that arjuna is having at this point in time so their reading of the situation will be better than arjuna's reading of the situation so that is one way of looking at why krishna is saying that it will lead to endless infamy right but the interesting thing is just like how in the earlier section krishna spoke of two scenarios Either you believe in the concept of the soul going through many bodies or you believe that there is no soul and you live only as long as the body exists. So even when he speaks of duty, Krishna gives two sets of arguments. One set of arguments is about sin and merit. Sin and merit always comes into play only when you consider continuity of some form after death. Of course in the Sanatana Dharma we believe that you come in another body But even if you consider the idea of afterlife in a heaven or hell or something, automatically any kind of continuity after the point of death suggests that we must look at sin and merit. So that's why Krishna speaks about sin and merit initially, which comes into consideration if we consider continuity after death. But then he also speaks about fame and honor being more important if you do not consider continuity, if you're not thinking about afterlife. And Arjuna is so depressed that he might not be even thinking of heaven and thinking about what is going to happen in the next birth. So Krishna gives both arguments whether he thinks about this being a continuous existence of which this lifetime is only a small step or if you think of this lifetime itself as being the most important. And eventually Krishna concludes this section by saying that if you win, oh Arjuna, you will rule the earth if you happen to die in the battle, you will still end up going to heaven because you have done what was your duty. So why hesitate? Don't hesitate. Go ahead and participate in this battle. And Krishna removes any doubt that Arjuna might have had with regards to sin that he may accrue in the course of the battle by saying, He says, Sukha dukhe same labha la jaya jayao Treating happiness and sorrow, gain and loss and victory and defeat with equanimity then you engage in battle that way you will not incur any sin and here he says fight in the battle only because Arjuna is a warrior but in general Krishna is saying make pleasure and pain success and defeat as one have an equanimous approach to them and then Tato yuddha ye for Arjuna, fight in the battle, but for all of us, do what is your duty and in that way, naivam papam avapyasi, you will not be subject to any form of sin. So, with that verse concludes the part of the chapter where Krishna speaks from the viewpoint of Arjuna's duty. But the 38th verse is also a hint at the right way to do one's duty, the 38th verse that we just went through. Instead of performing actions purely led by raga and dvesha or likes and dislikes which will only cause sukha and dukha, gain and loss because when I say I like this state, I don't like this state you automatically are laying your road for either being happy or being unhappy. So doing anything inspired by raga and dvesha will cause sukha and dukha, gain and loss in some form or the other. Right, So he says that do it with samatvam, do it with the idea of equanimity. That will not lead you to having any kind of sin. In other words, you will not be having any kind of doership when you are able to operate from that equanimity or samatvam. But hereafter from the 40th verse, to be precise, Krishna elaborates on this. Right? Krishna says in the 39th verse that till now I spoke to you about Sankhya now I'll teach you Buddha Yoga. Right? But in the 38th verse itself, he gives a hint about what is that Buddha Yoga because he mentions a Samatwam, he mentions doing action with a different kind of attitude rather than by purely being inspired by likes and dislikes. So he drops a hint in the 38th, but in the 39th he says, Now I'll tell you about acting with Buddha Yoga. If you equip yourself with this Buddha Yoga, he says, sin will not touch you. And he goes on to say very beautifully, even practicing a little of it will benefit one. There will be no wastage of effort at all. And thus starts the discourse on the concept of Karma Yoga, the section from verse 40 to 53. Why does Krishna say there will be no wastage of effort here? When we do something for the results. The actions may be successful or it may be a failure. But when we perform karma yoga, the goal is neither success or failure of the effort. The goal is always chitta shuddhi or the purification of the mind which is nothing but a preparation for the mind to receive wisdom. Right? All of this Krishna says in the ensuing verses. So karma yoga is done purely for chitta shuddhi. So in the worldly sense one may end up being successful or otherwise but if it is done with an attitude of buddhya yoga or karma yoga it will lead to chitta shuddhi. So there is no way the effort that one puts in the form of karma yoga can be useless. That is why there is no wastage of effort. I might struggle as a businessman all my life and I never see any success. I remain poor till the end. Then one could say that all my efforts are futile or wasted. But if I'm a karma yogi businessman, you know, I struggle with all my business and I end up being poor, but I would have still got what is the goal of karma yoga, which is chitta shuddhi. So there is absolutely no waste. Also in karma yoga, the success of the approach is entirely with me. If I practice it perfectly, that is more than enough. But in regular karma, so many external factors are involved and they all contribute to the success right that is why krishna says na iha asti in this there is no wastage of effort na vidyate there are no opposite results i am doing it for something i end up with something else that can never happen here you're doing it for chittashuddhi and you will attain chittashuddhi and then he adds swalpa even a little of this approach saves one from great fear. In other words, it leads one or contributes to liberation. Then Krishna explains, because this calls for concentrating primarily on one's own efforts and attitudes, instead of seeing what the situation outside is, one can have more focus. So in verses 42 and 43, Krishna explains about the distractions that are caused by the Vedas and how they are misinterpreted by those whose actions are inspired by Raga and Dvesha. Krishna says the Vedas offer everything from worldly benefits, a place in the heaven and even ultimate liberation or moksha. But most people are stuck at the lower benefits. They are good people but then they are not mumukshus or ones who crave for moksha. So even though they take to the scriptures, they are probably not able to rise to that full potential. We could even say this about the opportunity of knowing Swami or being a part of the Sai organization just to make it a little more accessible to our understanding. All the benefits are there. Swami says, you know, some people would say that I am doing Swami's work and Swami will do mine. Well, yes, that approach is right. Swami himself has said. But if you're going to participate in the activities of the Sai organization or be involved in Swami's work only because that takes care of your work, then Swami says that is what you will get. Some people say that I come to the organization or I come to the ashram for better networking and better opportunities in my social life or in my professional life. Swami says yes, that also you will get because there is a gathering here of like-minded people that will improve your state. But that is what you are going to leave this place from. But Swami says, I have set up this organization to give you an opportunity to develop Chitta Shuddhi and attain the highest state. So if you come to Swami seeking that, then you will attain that. right? Same as the case with the Vedas. The Veda offers everything. It offers worldly benefits. It offers a place in the heaven. But it also offers the ultimate liberation. So what is it that you seek? So Krishna says that if you have that right kind of focus, you will not be distracted by all these offerings that the Vedas are making or opportunities that life itself throws at you. And Krishna uses a very beautiful word. He says avipaschitaha to describe those who are lost in the flowery interpretations of the Vedas. A word that almost suggests that those that lack clarity of vision, which means they see, it is not that they are blind to what is in front of them. They see, but they are not seeing clearly enough. Avipaschitaha They have recognized that there is more to life and they have turned to the Vedas or for in our case, We have recognized that there is something more and we have turned to Seva, we have turned to Swami. But even after that, we continue with our Raga-Dvesha inspired pursuit. Then we are unwise who see yet do not see clearly enough. We are Avipaschitaha. So Krishna says, as long as you are obsessed with worldly comforts and wealth, Bhoga Aishwarya Prasaktanam, Taya Apakhrita Chetasam. The mind is stolen away by the distractions and one-pointedness doesn't get established in such a mind. So how to overcome these distractions that the Vedas and life in general presents before man? Krishna says, Nistrai Bhava Arjuna Go beyond the three Gunas because all the worldly distractions are based on the Gunas all the attributes. Well, That seems like a very simple instruction. But how do we do that? How do you go beyond the three gunas? Krishna gives four points. Actually, these four points are very practical and can be implemented in our life. He says, Nirdvandvo bhava. Try to go beyond the dualities of loss and gain, happiness and sorrow. This does not mean don't be happy and don't be sad. Practically speaking, it means try not to let your happiness or sorrow or your craving for happiness decide or dictate what you do. That is what it means by saying bhava. Don't let the dualities of life define your actions. Nitya bhava, Which means be established in goodness. And we had also mentioned about how Swami says that using sattva we transcend all the three gunas. Sattva is also one of the gunas. But using sattva you transcend all the three gunas. That's what Krishna says, Nitya Sattva sto Bhava. And then he says, Nir Yoga Kshema Bhava, which is again a way of saying go beyond what you like and what you dislike. He says go beyond yoga and shema, which means you do not only bother about attaining worldly possessions and retaining them. Attaining is yoga, safeguarding or retaining is kshema. So he says, Nir Yoga Kshema Bhava, go beyond merely grabbing and holding on to whatever is the worldly possessions that you're after. And finally, he says, Atmavan bhava." Try to develop self-control, which means you do not let the external circumstances define what you are. You develop control by saying that this is what I'm supposed to do and I will do it even if there are pulls and distractions all around me. And, This explanation leads to verse 47 which is again a very important verse on Karma Yoga where Krishna says You have the right and control only over your actions and not on the results and don't consider yourself the sole cause of the results. You do not have authority over the results and don't consider yourself the sole cause of the results. Very very important point. And because you are not the cause of the results, don't get attached to inaction. So do without expectation and never slip into inaction. These are three very important words. Do your duty, do it without expectation and never slip into a state of running away from your actions. And we've seen how Swami has explained that it is not that we do not have the right over the results. But we must out of our own will and determination refuse to be affected by the results. That is the essence of this verse. And then Krishna says that that state of being unaffected or unperturbed or that samatvam itself is yoga, samatvam yoga utchate, that equanimity is itself said to be yoga. And Krishna tells Arjuna that when you can do karma yoga, when you have the ability to do karma yoga which means all of us have the ability being born a human being each one of us has the opportunity and ability to do karma yoga and still if you do only regular karma it is such a pitiful state in fact he says it is miserliness not to do karma yoga which means just like a miser who has the means to lead a better life but continues to live in poverty because of his miserliness we all have the ability to do better but we are stuck in the lower form of karma. And Krishna says, if one acts with this buddhi yoga, one can transcend sin and merit in this very lifetime itself and be freed completely. And then he concludes by saying that one who attains such a focus, that life and its opportunities, the Vedas or the flowery words of the Vedas, flowery interpretations of the Vedas is something Krishna repeats in this section. He says, those will not Distract you anymore. In fact, one of the other beautiful verses in between is where Krishna says the one who is a karma yogi, for him it is like, what is the use of somebody who has a huge water body? Why will he go and dig a well? So regular karma to a person of such wisdom is like a person who has found a huge water body, he is not going to go after a small well. So this section of the second chapter ends where Krishna speaks about Buddha Yoga. Right. So first he spoke about Sankhya, which means the explanation of the true self. Then he speaks about Arjuna's duty, how one has to do, how one must do one's duty. And the third section is, when one has to do duty, how one has to go about doing the duty. The fourth section of the second chapter is when Arjuna asks this question, Can you please define for me what is the nature of a So as I said, I will not have time for that. We will leave that section alone as a summary for the next episode. It would be nice if I could have fit it in. But uh, I think there was so much to say that I could not fit that in here. So dear listeners, this is a partial summary of the second chapter. I don't know if uh, I managed to summarize that well enough to give an overview of what Krishna says. If there is something that I missed out and you would like to point that out to me, please write it to me. You can write directly to me, prematradiosite.org or you can write to listener at radiosite.org. They'll pass that mail to me and I'll try and include those points next time when I'm summarizing the last section of the second chapter. Thereafter, next week, we'll continue with the third chapter. So thank you for joining me. I most humbly offer this effort at Swami's Lotus Feet. I hope I've done justice to the second chapter and I pray to Swami to forgive me if I've failed in any way. I thank you all for joining me this week, just like how you do week after week. I'll come again next week to resume this Triune Pilgrimage of the Gita series. Till then, take care. Jai Ram.